turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, and we're going to read just a verse and a half, beginning in verse 4. Isaiah says, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Another version, the the NLT says, Everyone is coming home. Look around you and see. Everyone is coming home. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt. Taken the title of my sermon from that verse and that particular translation. My sermon is entitled simply, Home. And it is the final sermon in this series that we have been working our way through for several months now that I have entitled, Be Prepared, in which we've focused our attention on what the Bible calls the last days or the end times. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the series, the whole motivation for the series was the questions that people were asking based on the things that are happening in the world around us. Wondering, are we nearing the end of history and Christ's return? What are the signs that we're in the end times and how do we discern those signs? Those were the questions that uh, we really began this series with. And we've seen that while Jesus calls us to be mindful and watchful of the signs of the times, the consistent message of the Bible is that we cannot know the day or the hour. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that we should be less concerned with dates and more concerned with being prepared for Christ to come at any moment so that Like the homeowner in the parable that Jesus told, we are not taken by surprise when the thief comes in the night or when the master of the home comes and returns from his journey. He doesn't find us as his servants sitting around, but doing what he called us to do. In recent weeks, we've turned our attention to uh, the events associated with the return of Christ itself. So we began the series talking about what are the signs, and we then have uh, been on this closing journey talking about the different things that are related to the return of Christ and what Scripture has to say. And um, my sermons, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but they followed a progression of events that are described in history. And so the first sermon that I talked about was the return of the king, Christ's return itself. And then we talked about the resurrection of the dead. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the day of the Lord and the coming judgment that is associated with that. And today's sermon, I've entitled Home, which really brings us back to the beginning of this series. Many weeks ago, we were asking the question, how are we to be prepared? 
How? We need to be prepared. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we spent some time in uh, Peter's letter, if you remember, his first letter. And I want to read again a passage that we read at that time from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What Peter is saying there is that we can endure the difficulties of life in this world because we have a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, that is being prepared and kept in heaven for us. And we, in turn, are being guarded by God's power through the ups and downs of this life and the uncertainties of this world. We have a home that is waiting for us. Have you ever been homesick? Home, some people grow up in homes that don't have, they, they don't have a lot of attachment to because it's a place of pain. But many of us grow up in homes where It's where our roots are. It's where we're anchored. And home represents to us the place that we belong and the place where we can rest and be ourselves. And it holds a deep connection to who we are. And when we're away from home, we feel that longing to return. I can remember feeling all of those emotions and longings as an 11-year-old when my family moved to Hong Kong in September of 1975. When we left, I was actually excited. What 11-year-old wouldn't be excited to be going on an adventure halfway around the world? And it was an exciting thing to get on the plane and fly out. Not many farm boys from our Maida, Michigan get that opportunity. But we weren't in Hong Kong long before homesickness set in. I missed my friends. I missed the farm. I missed our dog and our pony. I missed baseball. And I became aware that I was a misfit, a stranger in a strange land. My, to my British schoolmates, I was a Yank. And they made fun of my accent. I don't have an accent, but they made fun of my accent. It sounded unrefined and ignorant to them. 
To the Chinese, I was a curiosity, and there were times when I would get on the bus and happen to sit by an old lady who hadn't had much exposure to European people, and some of those ladies, they, they didn't have any boundaries at all. They would stroke my hair and feel my arms and touch my skin like, what is this thing? I can remember, I've mentioned it before, I can remember one time sitting in our living room and... Um, the smell of fresh-cut grass came in through the window. I hadn't smelled it in years. And it brought back all of these memories and longings. The longing was so deep, it was I could feel it in my bones. John Eldridge tells the story of the sea lion that I have mentioned on different occasions through the years called The Parable of the Sea Lion in his book, journey of desire and he talks about a sea lion that has lost the sea and he has drifted away and ultimately finds himself living in a mud puddle instead of in the sea and he's forgotten almost completely forgotten where his true home is But every once in a while, he gets the smell of the sea and it reawakens something in that sea lion that he was made for more than a mud puddle, more than this. And it stirs in him a longing for home. There's something in all of us that nags at us and tells us we don't quite fit in this world that we were made for something different, something more, that we have lost our home. And we feel that persistent longing for the place we belong. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, which I've mentioned a couple of other times during this series, tells us that God's people are a people who are looking for a better country. They realize that they are foreigners and wanderers and misfits on earth. And they are looking for a homeland, a place that they can call their own, that is being prepared for us by God himself. Jesus told the disciples in John 14 during the upper room discourse as he was preparing to uh, for, for his arrest, betrayal and arrest and crucifixion and his return to the Father. He said this to them. He said, I am going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I am going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Home. This is our hope, Peter says. And it's a living hope that cannot perish or spoil or fade, being kept in heaven For us, we have a home. 
And not only is God keeping it for us, but he is also keeping us for it as we walk through this uncertain day, this uncertain world, until that day that he brings us home. The prophet Zephaniah says in chapter 3 and verse 20, speaking the words of the Lord to the exiles, but those are words that are intended to reverberate through history and envelop all of God's people who are wanderers on the earth. He says, on that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. And the prophet Isaiah says in the passage that we read, look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine. And your heart will thrill with joy. What will that home be like that God is preparing for us? You ever wondered that? What will it be like? I can remember as a kid growing up in the church, we used to talk about, you know, we'll be able to walk through walls and the streets of gold and those kinds of things. On the one hand, I think we can't possibly imagine what it will be like. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can conceive the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But scripture does also offer us a few glimpses that give us a sense of what our eternal home will be like. Isaiah chapter 60, we read a portion of that. If you read the, the entire chapter, you get a, um, a description from the prophet Isaiah. And if you read in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you will see similar Thoughts and ideas based on what John saw. And I encourage you to read those passages. But one passage that we tend to overlook when we're thinking about heaven is Genesis chapter 1, which describes the beauty and the goodness of creation before sin entered the world. And I believe that that description of the home that God created for us at the beginning of all things can also give us a sense of the home that God is preparing for us at the end of all things. John tells us in Revelation chapter 21 that this world is going to pass away because it is broken and tarnished by sin. But God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth that is unblemished and untarnished. And that new creation will be our home. So I think that we can learn some things from the description of the first creation before sin entered the world that can give us a sense of what the new creation will be like. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand again. We'll get the blood flowing. Shake your legs. Get that blood moving into your toes. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 1.
shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice that expression, the heavens and the earth, and we get to the very end of Scripture, and what is God doing? Creating a new heavens and a new earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Right, Joe? Made you stand too long. Apologize. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground. The first thing that I think we can notice from Genesis chapter 1 is that the home God is preparing for us will be teeming with life. As God created the cosmos, he filled it with life and activity. And as God filled the earth with the sea creatures and the birds and the air and the, the, the plants that took root in the ground and the animals that, that inhabit the earth, as he filled the earth with life, he said again and again, it is good. It is good. But Paul tells us that since the fall of Adam, creation has been suffering under the curse of sin right along with the rest of humanity. And Paul, though, goes on to say that the day is coming when all of creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. And all of creation, not just humanity, but all of creation will be restored to the fullness of life. You think about how rich and full life on earth is, but this life, this planet, and its, its, its fullness of life that we observe is actually creation subdued by the curse of sin. And I wonder, imagine the glory of the new creation that is free to flourish as God intended creation to flourish. What richness and abundance will there be, and what beauty and majesty will creation have, the new creation? The second thing I think that we can draw from Genesis 1 is that in the new creation, we as human beings will take our rightful place as stewards when God created Adam, he gave Adam dominion over the earth. And you can read that in, in verse 28 of Genesis 1. And part of uh, um, that dominion is part of what it means to be made in God's image. Just as God exercises dominion over all that he has made, his decision was that human beings would reflect him by exercising dominion over the earth. God's design was that humans would use their authority and creation to nurture it and to cause it to flourish. But in our rebellion against God, we have abused our authority for our own ends and our own greed. And the result has been untold suffering and devastation in the created order. But in the new creation, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, we will reign with Christ. Our authority in the created order will be restored and we will no longer exercise that authority in rebellion. Instead, we will exercise it in obedience under God's direction. And under our hand, creation will flourish. 
There will be all kinds of work to do. I don't think we're going to be standing around in heaven. We're going to be busy. But our work won't be labor. Instead, our human creativity that also is a reflection of who God is will be unleashed for good. And the natural world will willingly surrender to our care. Remember the curse in Genesis 3? You're going to labor and every seed that you pull out of the ground is going to be the result of hard work because creation will resist you. But now creation will willingly surrender to human beings who have been given dominion and it will flourish and produce beauty and order and abundance. Thirdly, the new creation will be a place of worship. The creation narrative describes a creation that is exquisitely ordered by the wisdom of God. And you can get another sense of that from Job chapter 38 through 41, where God says to Job, Were you there when I did this and ordered this and put this in place? And what you see from Scripture is that by God's authority, there is this perfect order in creation that is established. Everything in its proper place as a part of the whole, functioning as God designed it to function. And as it functions, as God intended it to function, it reveals his wisdom and his goodness. And so the psalm says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. And in Proverbs chapter 8, that's one of my favorite passages in scripture where wisdom talks to us and says, I was there when God did all this stuff. And I was rejoicing in all that he made, delighting in his skill. So really, the new creation will be an eternal song of worship that will not necessarily be one that we sing, but one that we live. Everything being fully what it was created to be and everything doing what it was created to do and every part taking its place in the whole under God's authority like individual instruments in a vast orchestra, perfectly playing in tune together. Have you ever been part of something as a group, and you had success in how much, how much pleasure and satisfaction you get out of that? And just in that same way, as all of creation looks to the concert master, and obeys his every move, every note will be flawless, and it will sing out his glory, and we will take great pleasure in it, because we are part of it. Finally, the new creation will be a place where God lives with his people. We learn from Genesis that God was present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but because their sin 
is an offense, and our sin is an offense to God's holiness, it was necessary that humanity be separated from God. So Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. But God's desire has always been to be near to us. And so from that day, that tragic day, when the way was closed to his presence, God has been at work to remove our sin and restore us to himself. I love how Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 and 4 just resound with the final satisfaction of those ancient longings. God and man are separated. But now, Revelation 21 says, now the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will be no need for a temple where we can go and meet with God because he will always be present with us. And there will be no need for a sun or a moon because he himself will be our light. When speaking about those things, Jesus says in John 17 and verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And that is what home is all about. Not only the place, the new creation where all things will be set right, but most importantly, that he will be there. He is what makes home, home. It's in knowing him that we find our true selves, and it's in his presence that we will find the place that we truly belong. So Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you. So that you will always be with me where I am. Are you longing for home? I can remember after four years of our time in Hong Kong for our first, uh, um, uh, I can't even remember what you call it now, but we, li- we lived there for four years and we came home for furlough. And I was 15 and I can remember getting on the plane and just waiting for the engines to start up and to feel that jerk when the plane starts to move because it would be the sign, I'm going home. We sat there for two hours And then they pulled us off the plane. We sat in the airport for another hour or so, and they told us they were having mechanical difficulties. In the end, it was six hours of waiting on the tarmac. Probably the most excruciating six hours of my life. 
Do we have that kind of longing to be home? There's a song that Michael Card sings that speaks to these things. It's called, I Will Bring You Home. And I'm going to do my best to sing it to you because I think it's a little better sung than spoken. Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home. I will be your home. In this fearful fallen place, I will be your home. When time reaches fullness, when I move my hand, I will bring you home. Home to your own place in a beautiful land. I will bring you home. I will bring you home. I will bring you home. From this fearful fallen place, I will bring you home. I will bring you home. Home. Keep your eyes on home.